So yeah, welcome to Monday, January 15th, Solid Ground live stream. It is our second of the, well, it's actually our first live stream of the new year because we recorded mm. our New Year's day and then we took the eighth off. So we took the second week off. So this is a brand new year and it's our second year doing Solid Ground. So it's, I think that's very exciting. Welcome everybody. Yes. yes. Happy new year. Yeah. Happy new year. Happy 2024. And we have Jamie Reed with us today. Jamie Reed is a whistleblower, a former clinical case manager for a youth uh, pediatric transgender clinic at the, was it the Philadelphia Children's Hospital? St. Louis. St. Louis. Okay. Yeah. And uh, you have done a lot of podcasts lately and been out there with the story and with the the passion that you have around this issue. There's plenty of places where people can go and get all of that information. And and if you have any favorite links that you want to offer up, maybe you could tell people where they could follow your story. I really enjoyed the trigonometry podcast. I had no idea what to expect with those two. And um, <laughs> I, yeah, but I really enjoyed I'm speaking with them. Um, Transparency was the first podcast I ever did with Aaron Terrell and Aaron Kimberly. I thought it was a great episode. I also loved that they both um, emailed me directly individually, asking me to come on, not knowing that the other one was also emailing. Uh So they're like trying to beat each other to it. So I think Aaron Terrell won, I think, on that one. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. And I was just actually listening to you on gender, a wider lens, and Mm -hmm. that was shaping up to be a really great conversation. I think I'm about halfway through it right now. Yeah. But um, your story is, is, I think, really compelling, partly because the position that you come from is, is at, at, when you went into this, you really thought that these treatments were very helpful for some people, but you expected that there was a high level of rigor being done in order to ascertain who is going to actually be benefited from some of these youth gender treatments. And as you came to work in this field, you you saw a completely different picture. And now you've been very outspoken around uh, what's going on and the need to be uh, for, and I guess the, the need for us to pay more attention to this issue. And, and I've, I like, uh, I really enjoyed your speech at Genspect because you come from a left of center position mm-hmm. and you made that very clear. And I think that's really an, an important bridge building for a lot of people who see this as a left, right issue. Yeah. I don't know how to help break us out of that narrative. One of the things I find frustrating every single news article I read is that it just goes back to this claim that this is a right left issue. And I just don't, I don't see it. I don't see it with all of the people I interact with in my daily life. Um, I don't see it in the science. Um, I think it's a real detriment to open conversation to have it painted in such a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I was actually curious because I saw your piece, I think it was in the free press regarding your particular, you know, political orientation. I'm curious, like the response to that, I haven't gone and read the comments lately. So I'm wondering, like, how did that, how did that land? Um, I think the free press is its own interesting, has its own interesting readership. Um, You know, Barry, who started it, came from the New York Times. I think that she has her own 
I don't want to speak for her, but I feel like a little bit of a libertarian kind of bend. Um, I, I feel like what we see, if you especially look in the comments section, um, is that there is an openness for those who are willing to listen to acknowledge that this really does span party lines. And I think that we're seeing that in polling too. So when you see some of these polls coming out from the general public, um, if worded in a neutral way, most Americans are not in support of permanent medical changes to pediatric or adolescent patients. And the thing that is difficult is basically all of the medical treatments that are given are permanent. So if you are opposed to permanent medical changes, you cannot just stop with, you know, a ban on surgery. It's cross-sex hormones, and especially it's the puberty blockers directly to cross-sex hormones pathway too. And speaking of puberty blockers, I know Jennifer had some specific questions or some maybe broad questions, and uh, I'm going to interrupt the flow here because I forgot to ask one of you to let people know okay. who we are. What is solid blurb, ground? What is the- <laughs> <laughs> who are these strange people? Yeah. So we're, solid ground is a peer support community community, and we are here to help people navigate uh, the divisive impacts of oppressive ideologies, such as critical social justice. And you can join us for um, $5 a month at solidgroundsupport.com. We run three peer support groups per week. And um, we also do our live stream weekly on Mondays. And we'd be very happy to meet you. The groups are great. We talk about all different kinds of issues and challenges that we're facing. A lot of people are still facing these challenges in the workplace of navigating critical social justice being imposed upon them. And we're here to help each other with that. Excellent. Thank you. And hi in the chat to Sinankari. Is it Sinankari? Am I pronouncing that right? In Finland. Hello, Helena. Hello, Ninja Kitty. And yeah, Jennifer, did you have um, do you want to start off? Oh, yeah. So, I, you know, I am concerned about, well, I'm concerned about the whole trans phenomenon for many reasons. But one of the things that concerns me is there's a lot of people who still believe that if you give a child puberty blockers, that this just pauses puberty. That's what we're being sold. And it gives them a chance to decide. And then everything will just go back to normal. If they decide, oh, I'm completely comfortable in the body I'm born in, you just take them off the puberty blockers and everything goes back to normal. And the same thing is sort of being sold with um, the cross-sex hormones. And so I'm wondering if you could speak to that and to the long-term effects of both the puberty blockers and the cross-sex hormones. So let's separate them out first. So puberty blockers first. Historically, puberty blockers were used in what is called the Dutch protocol. So never in a million years did I think that I would be my age talking about the Netherlands and the Dutch as often as I do. But there were clinicians in the Netherlands, Dutch clinicians who created a protocol and their protocol is what all of this is based on. And the concept was that they were going to give children puberty blockers as part of the assessment period so it was supposed to be blocking 
puberty to do more therapy and provide a time to think, which is the title of Hannah Barnes' book from um, the Tavistock Clinic in England. So initially, puberty blockers were thought of as this period of assessment. When you are digging in more, you're working therapeutically, you're really trying to do more assessment and see, is this a long-term um, identity or issue that a young person's having? So initially, they thought this was a pause. That's kind of how they framed it and how they looked at it. Um, even kids who are given puberty blockers for precocious puberty still experience long-term, sometimes detrimental, significant effects. There's a few articles about this. There have been reports to the FDA, individuals who are given puberty blockers for the FDA kind of right reason still have long-term harms. So the Dutch thought kids would go on this. It would be the pause. We'd do more therapy. Probably a number of them would come off. That's where we get this idea that you can just come off and everything goes back to normal. Um, what we see in most of the data that we do have, which is not very much, is that in England, pretty much you can say with confidence over 90% of kids who are put on puberty blockers go on directly to cross-sex hormones. It was also directly what we were seeing in my center. It is not a pause. It is not a time to think. It is step one in a process. Um, I sometimes kind of view it as a funnel that once somebody falls in at the top, you cannot get out. You It just goes down the funnel, down the funnel, down the funnel. So they fall in the funnel, they start the puberty blocker, everyone goes on to cross-sex hormones. And this is where this idea that it's just um, a pause or that everything goes back to normal goes really haywire. Because most of the problems with sterilizing kids comes in when we do a puberty blocker at Tanner stage two and we go right to cross-sex hormones. So Tanner stages is the different stages of puberty that they can judge where your kid is at. Um, Tanner five is the highest, Tanner one, zero, one, two, three, four, five. So five, you would think of probably a 16, 17 year old boy would be at Tanner five. Um, most girls go through puberty earlier than boys. Um, but, you know, you can be at a quite young age, seven, six, seven, eight. Um, starting puberty blockers. And what is truly irreversible is cross-sex hormones. So we gave out a, a colorful, bright handout that kind of sold these ideas to patients, but it listed the irreversible changes, the partially reversible, the reversible changes. There are some significant irreversible changes that start quite quickly with testosterone. Within three months, you're going to see the voice drop. This is because there's actual thickening and physical changes that are occurring on the voice box, things that are not reversible, and they can happen quickly. The other thing that happens quite quickly with testosterone is the clitoris grows into what we were calling a microphallus. 
so it can grow a couple centimeters. It can get length to it. It can have some detrimental effects. It can sometimes protrude outside of the vulva, cause chafing and rubbing. Um, but you will see clitoral growth quite quickly that is also completely irreversible. So then with testosterone, you will see the body fat will actually start to move. So it'll move in women. It's more pear-shaped, more along the hips, the thighs. That'll start moving into the abdomen. And abdominal fat is a little bit more dangerous than we know more dispersed fat. So that's where you see some of the cholesterol, the, you know, the body fat actually moves around and changes. Um, body hair will start coming in all over. You'll see some um, changes to, you know, facial hair, sideburns first. Some people will start growing facial hair. Um, you'll see male pattern baldness. You'll see thinning of the hair, the crown of the hair. Thin skin will thicken up. It'll become more coarse. Um, I mean, I can keep going. The inside of the vaginal canal will start to atrophy and start to have um, changes. A lot of people will report abdominal pain, cramping their ovaries, their uterus. They'll have cramping and pain. Um, menstruation will cease. And I mean, these are these are real effects across the whole body too. Um, we also have had, you know, reports, patients on testosterone will report that they can no longer cry or that their emotional bandwidth really changes. So it goes from, they feel flattened out. They feel like they get angry really quickly, or the only emotions that they have are anger and anger or just real flat effects. Um, and some things that are not mentioned often is that patients also will report that they feel like their sexual orientation has changed. So mm -hmm. patients who mm -hmm. were maybe same sex attracted. So women who were attracted to women will find being on testosterone for a while will shift their sexual um, attractions, which is hard for some people. And just a lot of these things are not reversible. And, you know, the boys have their own set of changes with cross-sex hormones. The differences with the boys, there, there are so many different treatment, like drug options, um, that testosterone is really clear because it's kind of one and done. Everybody gets tea in some form or another. You know, I just heard, I think yesterday, and I don't know, it was like a study of 25 people that they're thinking that it also might result in IQ dropping. And I don't know the how, I mean, 25 person, yeah, 25 person study is very small. And so I was like, I don't know if I should be spreading this, but that seemed, and I'm, the bone density has also been another issue, right? Absolutely. So the puberty blocker and the IQ drop, um, I've seen a researcher present on this and I feel like their reasoning was compelling that it definitely needs more research. And part of what they were explaining is that the brain has these certain periods of time where it does a lot of growth or pruning, I think is what the word that she used was, you know, you create a lot of connections and then there's periods where you prune them back and you 
narrow in and you focus on some of those connections stronger. And basically part of her hypothesis is just that there are stages in adolescence where those things have to occur. And if we pause or block those periods, there's no real good evidence that those catch up or can occur later. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, she did look at a number of studies and she was finding, you know, some people were, I saw an X or Twitter, people were saying like, oh, well, it was a seven point drop or a 10 point drop. Um, I actually think that's really that's significant. significant. Yeah. I, I yeah. mean, when you, when you think Jeez. about like, yeah, you don't, I don't, I don't want my kids to have any IQ point drops. So yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it definitely looks like there's more to it and there's a real need for some much better research and evidence on that. And then, yes, there is known issues with bone density. Anyone put on a puberty blocker should be having something called a DEXA scan regularly. Again, it's another thing where the doctors will say, oh, well, you'll regain all of the loss once you stop the puberty blocker. But the the idea that these are benign, simple, easy treatments is just, it's absolutely not true. These are very significant, have long-term impacts, and, and should always have been considered in a very serious way. Does the... I- does the IQ return? Does the brain development catch up or that's it? You've missed that window. No, it, it looked like from the small studies that it it's it it doesn't come back. I mean, IQ is pretty set. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, and I so- think to Deborah's point about the studies being small, one of the points that this researcher was making, it was Sally Baxendale and her, her presentation, she talks about the fact that there's just no there's not any evidence to say that these things are not causing these problems and very little evidence at all around them. So we're actually, we're actually in the middle of a great experiment because there, these people who are saying that they're reversible have nothing to base that on. It's like, if it you think about me, it, oh, go ahead. Well, this is going to maybe show my age. It reminds me of this old book by Rachel Carson. It was called The Silent Spring. And she was one of those early pioneering ecologists that said, it's not okay for you to put weird chemicals into the out into the environment and then demand that we prove that they're not safe. Her mm. whole thesis was you have to prove something is safe before you ever mm. use it. And I think I like it's that. that- it's the reversal of the thought. You shouldn't be, you should not have, we should not have be, been experimenting on this huge group of kids until we had proven all of this safety first. And what Sally's talking about is they're, they're doing animal studies on some of these puberty blockers, like needing to go back to animal studies to prove safety. Good yeah. Lord. I'm just thinking of the precautionary principle. Yeah, like if you think about it, I mean, everything you've been saying, if this is the time of life when all these 
I mean, tissues, muscles, brain are, are developing. Like that's a process that takes time. You know, by the time you're an adult, not a lot is changing, but if you are inhibiting, like the body's forming still, you know, and if you're inhibiting that in some way and it needs to be a certain sequence and things flow in at certain times and you've disrupted that, I mean, that's, uh, you know, I mean, we're seeing it go on, but it's, like you said, I can't remember how you said it, but it's sort of like, why are it like, you have to have a pretty good reason why you think this would work. Yeah. yeah. I have a couple of questions. Um, first off, the, what you mentioned earlier was really interesting about the concept of the funnel, that once somebody goes on to puberty blockers, 90% of them go on to the cross-sex hormones. What's your sense of why that is? Oh, <laughs> I, I think that touches on the concepts about why social transition is not benign in and of itself. So uh, Hillary Cass talks about this in her interim report, the Cass report from England. But the idea with children, I think especially is children believe what we tell them. They follow um, parents and they follow who we say are the professionals. Um, I mean, I teach my young kids, if I'm leaving you in the hands of the gymnastics teacher, that adult is in charge of you for the next half an hour. You know, like I, we, we teach kids who to listen to and, and what to, you know, kind of do. And when we give a kid this concept that they can socially transition, so we can change your name, um, and I mean name outside of a nickname. I'm not. I'm not talking yeah. about you know you call your kid, you know, like a a, a nickname, but a whole kind of new birth, new name, new pronouns, and then to put a kid on a puberty blocker. There is you are not going to have, but the rarest of rare kids ever be able to stop. We're asking a kid to basically stop a train. Yeah. Down the tracks. I see. And they just don't have that ability, comprehension, knowledge. Um, I had spoken to a patient who had socially transitioned and only had changed their name and pronouns. And, and they had told me that they felt like they could not go back even if they wanted to they could not go back and because because they saw their parents tell the teacher they saw their parents tell everyone around them they saw their parents you know fighting with the grandparents and there had oh. been so many mechanisms pulled for this change that the kid uh as much as they were regretting it and and feeling like they wanted it to stop they just felt like they couldn't stop it and so for so many patients, you know, they feel like the puberty blocker is the start and then you just go on. But we also, we also kind of sell it that way. The way that a gender center kinds of explains it is we're putting on a puberty blocker and then we talk about what age do we do cross-sex hormones? It's like, it's just, it's just sold as uh, that's the next step. That's right. How this works. 
Right. Well, and I would think too, that a lot of kids that are having this sense of, oh, I'm really a boy or I'm really a girl, that if they were allowed to just proceed through puberty naturally, that that in and of itself might help them to step into and grow into both physically and emotionally as well, the, um, the sex that they were born into. And that's, they're missing that opportunity to just go through a natural puberty, which might very well sort, sort things out for them. That was what you see. If you look at some of the original, original data, when you see how many kids desisted, um, it was, you know, puberty for many was the desistance moment in time. But we, for so many of these kids, they're not, they're not also afforded the resiliency mm-hmm. that's acquired in puberty. That's right. So some of the messaging, some of the messaging from activists is like that puberty in and of itself is somehow the wrong puberty is, is like a, a torture, which is just, we're not, <laughs> those are stages that kids go through part of, maturing and being resilient and learning how the body changes and what do you have control over and what do you not have control over and and what does it mean to be in your body and what your body does those are hard things to do but that's part of growing up is we have to do hard things it seems like there's also been this language around almost though as though there's this rights language like there's a right to not have the puberty you're not supposed to ever there's a right to not even have puberty or something and then that's that a, becomes that's a, a medicalization political... of development yeah yeah, yeah but, but to make a political right out of it mm-hmm. it's you know it's like no it's actually what bodies do um <laughs> yeah well are we always trying to control nature and somehow yeah. be not animals and be outside of the natural world that's right. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Yeah. Thank you. Hey, what's your sense, Jamie, of why there is such a massive increase in the number of kids who are presenting with <laughs> gender dysphoria? Because this oh. used to be a very, very rare phenomenon. And I think you mentioned in the article in the free press, I can't remember how many gender clinics there used to be in the US, but then you said now there's over a hundred, like how, why, what's, what's driving this in your opinion? The common phrase that's used is social contagion. I, 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 I think the public kind of understands that. I think there are so many other elements to that. So, um, here's some kind of therapeutic word. So, um, you can see this as a culture bound syndrome. You can see this as um, symptom pooling or symptom looping, where we offer through social media, through schools, through medicine, we offer basically these are the options to explain your distress. And we have shifted what the options we're handing off to kids are to explain your distress. And right now, one of the 
symptoms, one of the things that is rampant in our culture that we are messaging to them is, do you feel distressed? Therefore, this is gender related. Um, mm. And some kids who even don't necessarily go in feeling distress can come out the other side having caught the distress. And what frustrates me to no end about people denying that there could be any element of social contagion is if you if you just look at other social science arenas, we know that suicide can be a social contagion. Divorce right. can be a social contagion. Marriage can be a social contagion. You can see pooled symptoms in we're humans. This is what we do. That's right. Yeah. And then another reason why, you know, scientifically you can say there is an element of a social contagion, just looking at this geographically on a map, you can see that there are certain geographical areas where this is, um, is, is pooling. And, and that goes back to infectious things are caught and infectious things are found in geographical spots. And so one of the things I found so interesting in some of the data coming out of our center was I was seeing a statistical high level of these are kids, white primarily, girls primarily, in middle class to upper middle class social socioeconomic households in in the first or second outer rings of suburbs had a high prevalence they have health insurance private health insurance um so we saw that kind of group and then we saw the group of kids who are in foster care or have significant family trauma family history um on state care so you could see different pools of where these symptoms were were pooling together. Um, and so then if you start to kind of take that apart, what is it about, you know, an inner or first ring suburb of upper middle class families? What do they have that could increase or increase the likelihood of that contagion element? So you probably have um, teachers in your school who are... Uh, woke liberal have these yeah. things in the classroom you probably have a, a good cell phone you probably ha live in a household where the internet is always on and it's not being cut off because you know mom can't pay the bill you probably have a significant amount of free time on your hands you probably aren't caring for your younger sibling because mom must work two jobs I mean you start thinking about what is it that allows these things pull together and then um you know, I think in our culture, too, we just have these these significant um, groups of adolescents who are experiencing a whole lot of distress. Um, and then when you added in the element of the pandemic, you also had a significant mm. portion of adolescents who were then having their own visual seeing themselves looped back at them frequently. So there've been studies about um, 
eating disorders in adolescent girls. And part of that with the rise of social media is that they are photographing themselves more. They're seeing their own image brought back in front of their eyes. If you're going to school all day in a setting like this, you're looking at yourself all day compared to the others around you. There's just so many elements that kind of baked in this perfect storm for what we saw. And then from the activist side, this was the next civil rights movement. So then you also had this whole cohort of especially white girls who were trying to think of ways and some of the boys who were trying to find ways to not be of the oppressor. Mm -hmm. So how am I, how can I get out of being, you know, in the civil rights kind of mindset? I don't want to be an oppressor. And so I can't change my race. I can't change my socioeconomic status. I can't change these things. But the one avenue that we opened up for kids is um, you can take on, you can be queer. Um, and for some of them being gay or lesbian, you know, those are, there's actually activities that come along with that, that if you're not actually gay, kind of work themselves out that this is not comfortable this isn't my thing but to take on that queer non-binary trans identity was was kind of a pathway for some of them and we've also seen how porn use can morph a person's sexuality or sexual appetites and so we've got all these kids sitting at home with their computers but that's kind of that's an entirely uh, different ball of wax but i think it relates it's interesting you know what you're saying about these two disparate groups that tended to be that you tended to find these clusters and i wonder about the um the lack of adequate uh conditions for identity development that might come from being either too affluent or having you know so you've got like the neglect on one side and you've got you you've got people who don't have the right amount of adversity and experience they have either too much or too little. And so you end up with these identity development, um, like sort of pockets that are experiencing this. And this is when I spoke with Eliza Mondegreen a couple of months ago on this channel, and she called it an idiom of distress. And I thought that was such a beautiful way to, to describe it. It's just such a succinct way to understand it. And it similar to anorexia or, or bulimia, the kind of eating disorders that we would have probably all seen among girls when we were teens, uh, this is and this is a similar sort of thing, but unlike that, when we were kids, we didn't have adults stepping in to say we're pro anorexia rights. We're pro, let's let's support you in your, you know, your right. your marginalized identity as yeah. an anorexic, <laughs> and we and you know you are a truly anorexic. So let's get you the help that you need because some people are really supposed to be very very skinny, and clearly you're one of them, and you know, there's, it's, it's got some similarities, but also I think that there's this socio-political, like it's, it's manifesting in the adults, the social contagion at the same time as it's oh, manifesting yeah. in the children. Absolutely. 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 Yeah. The, the adults are all thinking that, you know, the, these sort of middle and upper middle class adults all think that the thing to do as a good parent is to embrace your child's new identity, to support them, that that sort of being a good parent and a good liberal and, you know, being an educated, sophisticated person, that's what you do. Um, some of them, I think, you know, even kind of think it's cool because, I mean, it's like 
you've got a trans kid. That's the ultimate fashion accessory for somebody who's, <laughs> you know, wants to virtue signal. Um, yeah, it's absolutely. It's with the adults too, but you know, so the people that worked at that clinic with you, Jamie, and people that are working at all these other clinics, I'm assuming they know the same information you do about the long-term effects of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. So what is the difference between you saying, hey, wait a second, this is having some really negative effects. We need to rethink this. We need more research. We shouldn't be um, so quick to rush to this. And all the and all the medical professionals and social workers and nurses who are who are, um, you know, still advocating for this treatment, which does not have well-developed, well-researched protocols. What's, what is the difference? And do they even let themselves know about the other data? Like, I keep wondering if they just kind of go like that. It is quite siloed and it is quite, you know, I, I see what I want to see, or I, I search out what I want to search out. Mm, okay. I think there's a couple, you know, elements in my own life. Um, I think studying as I did in my undergraduate degree. So I studied cultural anthropology and then part of my degree program is I, I did go and study abroad in West Africa. And one of the things I remember um, people talking about preparing for cultural immersion um, or, you know, being in such a totally different place is that there's these kind of steps where when you, you know, when we first arrived, everything was amazing. Everything about the new place was so cool and ev they did everything right. And it was just so great. And everything about my, where I came from was horrible. And then there was this total shift where everything they were doing was wrong. And I, you, you wish to go back home and, you know, my home was perfect. And it's only after really being immersed in something and having this kind of cultural anthropological training that you come out on the other side and you can see the negatives and the positives in all cultures. You can see it in your own, you can see it where you're at and you have this lens where you can start to almost have some objectivity about the world around you. And so I really uh, credit a lot of my undergraduate coursework for being able to acknowledge the culture that I was within in this center. It was, it was its own culture. Like they intentionally hire LGBT people. There is self, you know, we, we believe this. So therefore we're going to keep digging in further. We're keep digging in further. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of policing in these places. I, I imagine that you have, you know, kind of experience in other kind of DEI workplaces. Um, I was one of those people that went out and trained in the other divisions and trained the other medical staff about, you know, I specifically would say in the training, we are not here to be the language police, but and then we'd put up a slide and be the language police and say, you can't say X, Y, and Z. Oh, um, but, you know, I remember 
we would get new doctors in and they would come through rotation and we would train them. And there was um, a patient who was using they, them pronouns. And I remember they, the doctor came out of the room, was doing their report to the doctor that was training them. So the resident was doing their report to the doc training and they kept misgendering the patient and the whole room at one point was correcting this person. So they'd say, well, she said that, you know, she's been having periods, they, and everybody would yell, they, and then the, <laughs> the resident would give another sentence. And she said that, you know, they, and it was just like, you were in an environment where we policed each other. We, um, in, there's something kind of totalitarian about it now um but but it just seemed like we were the we were the best of the best we knew the best info and we were gonna be the the best woke people on campus and it self-fulfills and keeps going and what was some of the things that were so interesting is that when people would start to reach their kind of breaking point. So there would be a couple times when, you know, we would have a patient come in who are asking for these, they're referred to as neo pronouns. So I know everybody, people who've read my piece are like, yes, there were patients who were asking for their pronouns to be mushroom or their pronouns to be rock or their pronouns <laughs> or their pronouns to be it. I thought you were going to say Zur. I've heard that. I no. didn't know mushroom. No, they were saying their pronouns were rock. And oh, holy shit. <laughs> Good. And so, God. and so sometimes you would start. I laugh now, but I'd be in a training and we'd be training people. Like, you have to respect their pronouns. And every once in a while, you'd get like the hardened nurse who's been in the ER for like 30 years, who's like, you know, the nurse who like, if your kid was shot, like you would want no one else in the room except for her. Cause mm -hmm. she could like, she would say like, she could save, you know, she knew all of the things she would be like, are you kidding me? Like, we're supposed to say what? And she, <laughs> and like, sometimes they would say things like, where is the line? Mm -hmm. And I really liked that. You know, I really, I really think about that in retrospect, where was the line? And we were just letting these kids push it and push it and push it and push it further and further out. Um, you know, our psychiatrist a couple of times said, why are we humoring this? Where, mm -hmm. you know, those kind of things. Um, but when it started to get into those extremes, that's still kind of my one hard, fast rule. I am not going to refer to a human being as it. I'm not going to be, no, I'm not going to so be dehumanizing. I'm not going to be complicit in dehumanizing you. I'm yeah. not going to do it, but I agree. But those are, those are, you know, where's the bottom? Where is the I, line? I think that's, where such a good is point. it? Yeah. It's like these kids are looking for a backstop. What's the, how, where am I safe? Where, where do I fit? I mean, I don't know. I know. I know. I, they I just wanted watched... to hear no from somebody. They wanted to hear I think no. So. They just wanted I think somebody so. to say yeah. no. I watched this video. I think it was like an Epoch Times video. And it was this cute, like heartwarming thing where this dad had just been out of, he'd just come out of incarceration after like 11 years. And there's this kid who's like 
12 or 13. Like this kid has always seen his dad through a plexiglass or on a phone or whatever, but he's not, he's sitting at a table. His dad comes up and sits next to him and he's doing this double take. Like, is this real? And then, and then the little kid just kind of, he like, he lights up and then he bursts into tears and then he folds into himself. He like curls into himself and the dad is sitting there and he, um, he reaches out and tries to pull the kid and the kid pulls back and the dad doesn't give up. He pulls the kid onto his lap and then the kid is like, okay, now I'm safe. And he wraps his arms around the dad and it's so sweet. It was like, I had to watch this twice because it's so sweet. But what you're watching there is the adult knew what the kid needed and the kid needed to feel safe. And he, he was saying to his dad, I don't feel, I don't trust this. I don't trust this. I'm going to trust me because I don't trust that you're really here. And I, I think about how much we need that in life, especially when we're kids, but from the people that we love. And, and there's this delicate balance of boundaries and respecting somebody else's body and their space and, and their thoughts about who they are. And, and I think that there's not an easy answer to this, but when you see a kid go all the way to mushroom all the way to like absurd it's the absurd and you don't provide a stop for them you're letting them go into free fall at that point you are yeah i mean it's like there's no there's no bottom to it and it's just uh, i just think it leads absolutely to insanity i mean what if somebody started saying they identify as a face slap and to honor that identity every time you greeted them and saw them they mm. wanted you to slap them across the face and that was how they wished to be recognized and interacted with. Are you going to engage in that and slap them and abuse them because they're saying that's what they want? I would think that, no, we would not do that. You know, Jamie, do you think the specter, this whole suicide thing, like it just, people just lost all sense of anything because they're like, they're going to commit suicide. I mean, like how much weight does that, you know, this suicidality thing? have over people allowing these things to go on i think the power of that is huge if anyone has been following ohio um the state of ohio here they had a, a bill to ban puberty blockers cross-sex hormones and surgery and the governor governor dewine at the end of the day he said he vetoed it and it was about suicide and he had had a child in his own life commit suicide not over gender but he he knew that pain and to him he couldn't get past that that fear that myth that um and i struggle with talking about this because i i know that there are contagions that suicide can be contagious. But from, you know, I sound like such a scientist, but from a, from a data-driven perspective, suicides are about always more than one thing. So to, to just say it's gender, it, it's always about more than one thing. And then it comes into the things that we assess when someone is reporting that they're feeling suicidal. Do they have lethal means? Have they attempted before? Um, statistically speaking, it is not young girls who have the statistical risk of suicide. And most of the patients in these centers are girls, teens. They don't have access to lethal means. Their attempts are normally 
um, not very serious. They're more, um, they're more gestures. They're more, yeah, they're more prone to be gestures or ideations. And not that those things don't deserve to be treated with care and caution, but I don't think that we need to be making public policy based on um, a fear mongering mentality. Yeah. And also just from a clinical perspective, if someone is suicidal and threatening that they're going to kill themselves, if you don't give them some kind of intervention, and that intervention is something that's really, that has permanent consequences, you'd want to make sure that you stabilize that person so that you could give informed consent. So how can you possibly give informed consent to someone who is so distressed that they're, that they're threatening to kill themselves? That's, those things are antithetical. Yeah. It's not quality care. It's not what we know is good care. Yeah. Well, in the chat, it looks like a little while ago we were buffering. And so maybe there was a little bit of a disruption. Sorry about that. Thanks Uh for sticking with us. And if, you know, maybe I'll review this live stream later. And if it looks like there's a glitch in it, I'll just re upload the recording instead of leaving the live up. Thanks for letting us know that. And I saw it was kind of made me chuckle earlier. I think it was Joel Henry. He said, Good morning from Boston. This show sure beats the view. So, Thank you. <laughs> I thought that was pretty cute. Hey, that could be that could be a sort of our motto. Sure we beat the view. Sure beats the view. <laughs> like that as a tagline. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I dig it. <laughs> thank you to everybody who's engaging. Lots of yeah, the clue channel. They should have been told no during year number one of the idiocy, not in 2024. I think that's a good point. And and I think that one of the things that Though it's it's so such a nuanced point because when do we realize? And I I really admire the perspective that you bring, Jamie, because there's still so much polarization around this issue. There's there's this. I think a a lot of people fall on one side or the other, and really it, there's there's such a gray area when we're talking about people's sense of identity and what we what kind of interventions we can access through medical technology and and where do you fall on that i mean it seems like on the one hand it's similar to a lot of cosmetic procedures that people have been availing themselves of over what the last at least all of my lifetime it's been it's been a thing that you if you're born with a really um, unfortunate deformity you can get it fixed and then at what point are you just monkeying around with perfection and trying to perfect something? So there's this whole spectrum of cosmetic intervention that, you know, you'll see like the, I remember the star, the tabloids when I was a kid that would be in the newspaper and you'd see some woman who's gone all the way to cat lady. She's done so much to herself, <laughs> but then you see somebody else who, and you're like, wow, well, you know, she had these horrible eye bags that made her look like she was tired all the time. And now she got them out and look at her, she's fresh. And she's, you know, so I, that's cosmetics. And so cosmetics meets gender and meets identity is this whole new field. And at what point are there are trans people who are living very happily in their trans identity? I, I, at least I believe that, that as adults, there are people who have, who feel themselves and who am I to judge what, what they feel for themselves. They feel for themselves that this was a good choice for them and that they live a better life because of it. And then there's kids. And don't do kids deserve the right to know what it feels like to be in an adult body before they make those kind of decisions? And then there's the hard question of males who, if they transition, if they really, really do feel that they would be benefited by gender 
affirming surgeries and, and therapies, they won't get the same kind of results if they avail themselves of it once they become a full grown man versus if they'd done it as a teenager. And I'm not saying that I think that you should intervene with kids. I'm just saying it's, there's a lot of complex questions that are being asked and, and it's not such a simple, I don't know. I don't think it's, it's as simple an issue as some people want to make it. It's not simple at all. And Leslie, you are so well-versed in this topic too. I mean, I think, you know, all of those historical kind of questions that got us here. But sometimes I do wonder if the Dutch, instead of looking younger, they could have been at a reflection point. So the reason why the Dutch started this concept at all with kids was that they were finding that adults who had transitioned were still struggling. And especially the boys who were trying to transition to be read by society as women were struggling with passing and feeling like they were being seen by society as women. I wish if we could turn back time instead of going, oh, let's just try to intervene younger. They stopped there and started looking at the treatments as they were then. What were the long-term health outcomes? Were there other therapeutic interventions that could be used to help? Were there any societal things that could be shifted? So could we have looked at ways to broaden our ideas of gender nonconformity mm -hmm. and become more accepting of gender nonconformity to help people live better functional lives instead of going backwards to the kids? Yeah, that's where I think the cultural phenomenon piece comes in as, you know, how do we deal with this as a culture because I've been told that you know in Thailand they view men who transition to women they don't view them as women they view them as a third gender mm -hmm. and that's boys. considered okay yeah the Thai lady boy so part of this I think is how we conceptualize it that influences how we treat it and to me thinking oh we'll capture this early in childhood because that will help them when they're adults is still, you know, I mean, what a high risk game that is, because we also know that the vast majority of people who are, um, you know, identifying as the opposite sex, if left alone, we'll they desist. will desist. So, but, but there's very this risky. other element, there's this other element to cultures that can have this liminal space for this third way that I think recognizes something about us as societal creatures and there is something about the ability for a person to live in, in, a, in a disassociative state and how long can one stay in that space and so what we are trying to ask kids to do some of the kids especially the kids who were blocking cross-sex hormone surgery we're asking them to take on the path of being stealth for the rest of their life. And then we're talking about 
if you are stealth, then psychologically, how much, I, I just know that there are elements of that stealth existence that can lead to feeling of imposter or, you know, honesty and who are you honest with and when are you honest? And I know that, um, some of the, some of the feminists who, you know, we don't agree on a lot or, uh, you know, we do agree, but you know, I think there are elements that I don't fixate on as much. But one of the things that I have heard people say is that one of the reasons why some of the parents cannot let this go is because they have basically signed their kid up for this lie. And the way that they have to proceed is that all of us are going to lie also, that we've all agreed, that they've created this social construct where where we're all going to buy into it. And I think that's I think that's a part of society where we do have, these are free speech issues where we should be having these conversations. Did we all agree to that? Do we all agree to maybe, um, should we have, should we have gendered restrooms? Should we have all non-gendered restrooms? Should we have sex segregated spaces and sports? Like we have to be able to have these conversations without just, labeling somebody as a transphobe or somebody hated just because That's they right. want to actually have these conversations. These are conversations we need to have. Right. Or doxing them or canceling them, trying to destroy them professionally because they want to explore these issues. Because part of the problem with this is these ideas have been adopted wholesale without any real conversation. I know in my previous workplace, we literally had no conversations about this and we started having more and more people presenting as trans and I questioned something in a meeting and was promptly told, but the model is affirmation. Well, we've never discussed the model, so I don't care. I have questions. I have things I want to say and I am going to say those things. Um, and I just think this is, this is ridiculous. What else have we just accepted. We don't, we don't. And as therapists, your job is not to instantly affirm a client. You're always exploring things and trying to gain an understanding and help the client to gain an understanding and look at things through a different lens. Why is this the one thing that's not allowed to be explored? We just have to accept it wholesale and immediately celebrate it. That's ridiculous. We don't do that with anything else. So I think you're right. We have to have these conversations. We have to have them professionally. We have to have them as parents all of this needs to be something where people can feel safe to discuss it without thinking they're going to be, you know, canceled. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this kind of goes back to what you said earlier, Jamie, when you were describing your workplace culture, where it, you'd be shouted down or shut down real quick. Like there was a quick yeah. nipping, like they, it's not she, it's they, it's like this, you're not, you don't feel you'd, you'd be terrified in that kind of environment to oh. voice anything that was in the, in the like questioning. And so, and it's the same on both ends of this. It's like, if uh, I've, I've, I've seen this myself because I do sort of want to explore all of this. I want to op openly talk about it. I want to not be afraid to be curious about something or to say, well, what about this? But anytime I venture into the, what about this territory, I get a flurry of comments that are, that are nipping me right back to, you, you have to think this way about trans and most of this sphere that I've been existing in has been the 
um, the gender critical, if you will, or the, mm-hmm. the anti, uh, anti, uh, gender ideology yeah. sort of sphere. So it's on that side too. It's don't you dare have a nuanced position. And even if it's not a position, cause I really don't know that I have a position. I have a curiosity. I have, I have a sense that there's too far on either side. Yeah. You know, one side you're impacting people's individual choice. The other side, you're, 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 impacting people's individual choice through coercive behavior on either side through medical scandal and malpractice or through denial of freedom of expression or whatever so there is this i think that we it's critical that we create a space for nuanced conversation to occur for people to spitball for people to brainstorm for people to be curious about what does it all mean I'm also curious, Jamie, too, since you're coming up to about a year since you whistle blue, if that's the past tense, um, are you seeing these spaces? I mean, obviously we're here talking about it, but are you seeing a little more room for the conversation? It seems like maybe the media, I don't know, like, are you hopeful about how there's more, so, so it's I'm, not just this blunt force <laughs> instrument? <laughs> I, I've always been a hopeful person, just in general. So that's that's just part of my nature. But yes, I am. I do see more room for nuance. I see more room for discussion. I also see strange political um, openings where, you know, people can be in coalition with one another, maybe on this topic where they, you know, aren't on any other. But then I love kind of the phrase like, you know, well, we don't agree on this, but thanks for having a conversation. And the more that I've heard that over the past year, Mm -hmm. the more I feel hopeful about our society as a whole. We're going into a presidential, which I think is scaring a lot of people. But what I would really like our leaders, people who are seeking our votes to think about in both parties is um, to be open to the dialogue around these issues. The issue of medically uh, interfering in kids' bodies, but this also touches on the rights of women, the rights of children to grow up, to be, you know, have functional reproductive systems and to have healthy chances for um, sex lives of their own. You know, these are these are big weighty issues that we should be having dialogue around as grown-ups without just shouting one another down and you know, and I think part of it is I, I'm trying to work with people every day to to mirror that and to show how that works. Well, it's time now. I know Jennifer's got her solid ground group right at 11 yeah. Pacific, which is what, 2, two, Eastern. 2 p.m. Yeah. Yeah. And so we always conclude right at the hour. Jamie, it's been such a delight to have you with us. Thank you so much for doing a deep dive on some of these issues that we have really just kind of been playing on the surface of so far. And so you really helped to um, go deeper into, especially the issue of pediatric gender care and puberty blockers and what does it all mean? And when you were describing the list of, I I, I was picturing like you in uh, the fine print underneath yeah. of the, the pharmaceutical yes, ad yes. you know? <laughs> yeah. and like yeah. the voice sped up to two times. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of uh, grisly. So thank you yeah. so much for sharing and thank you so much for the tireless work that you are doing and for, for really bringing this conversation into the light for a lot of people. Thank you so much for having me. It was a joy to speak with you all.
Yes, thank you. I hope you'll come back. Before we go, can I introduce the new puppy to the viewers? Oh, yes, please. (laughs) This is Henry. Oh, oh still ears inside out. There you go. He's sleepy. He's like the cutest thing I've ever seen. He has pronouns. His pronouns are sniggle and wiggle. (laughs) Are you affirming him? I'm affirming. I'm very affirming of this dog. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so sweet. Thank you for introducing us to Henry. All right, you guys. Thanks to everybody who joined us in the chat. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you so much, guys. Bye.